Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was absolutely rubbish. I'm Ellis James. I'm Chris Skoll. And I'm Tom Crane. And each week on this show, we'll be looking at a new historical subject. And today, we're going to be discussing... Big projects. Big projects. Isn't this a, actually, now we've picked this title, isn't this a series on Discovery Channel, hosted by Robert Llewellyn? (laughs) (laughs) Massive things on Discovery Channel. (laughs) Whenever I talk to someone, I don't know, say at a wedding, and I ask them what they do for a living, if they say project manager, in my mind, I'm always thinking, I would be so bad at that. Yeah. I would be so bad. Rubbish at being a project manager. So say I was project manager of the building of the new Wembley, for instance. Yeah, guaranteed. Day one. Can I just say very briefly, Ellis? That would be a, a bold decision on the part of the <laughs> of the FA the owners and the FA. I know you're into football, but I don't think that's enough. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> guaranteed. Workforce would be arriving on site day one. No toilets. I can I absolutely <laughs> promise you that. We would go to the grand opening and walk into the stadium and say, "Is this roof made from twigs?" Yeah, yeah. Can everyone do it on the? Can everyone go to the toilet on the pitch for today? <laughs> and because it's a, it's like an eight-year project anyway, so we'll all have dried up and stuff by the time the players are. Is that a, is that okay, everyone? Can everyone do it on the pitch? <laughs> Ellis, thank you. All ninety-four thousand seats are facing the wrong way. <laughs> They're facing to the back of the stadium wall. <laughs> this is. The one thing we didn't want to happen. <laughs> the one thing. <laughs> to be fair, you don't want all those seats facing the pitch when it's just a pile of worker excrement steaming <laughs> there. Yeah. That, that's no way to describe the England team. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I should say what we're going to talk about on this episode, which is how Rome was fed, communication in ancient Rome, pyramids, and subscribers will get that fourth part, which is electricity to rural areas, which yes. is something I've genuinely always wondered about. Whenever I'm in the country, it's the only thing I think about. My memory, because I grew up on the edge of the country, is constant power cuts. That is what my memory is of childhood, like the house just plunging into darkness all the time. Yes, but living in an age where electricity was really, really crucial to fun stuff. Yes. So I I grew up in the in the countryside and in the nineties, yes, power cuts all the time. But obviously when I was fifteen, what did I like? I liked the telly. I liked listening to music. I liked having the radio on. I liked having the lights on. I liked reading by by electric light. All all stuff that's really, really crucial to you my like life. Shadow puppets. <laughs> all yeah. the things that electrical light provides. Yeah. So it it wasn't it wasn't getting on my nerves in a really fundamental way. Yeah. You know, it was it's, uh, it was ju- it was just it was just irritating. But yes, but it we the, the research on that's really really interesting. So looking forward to letting our subscribers know how it was done. Shall we talk about this subscription deal? Skull, you're good at that sort of thing. Far away. <laughs> If you subscribe to this show, you get a fourth part in every every episode. You get a bonus episode every single month. And you get episodes a week early, plus access to any pre-sale tickets for future live shows. If you want to sign up and become a Oh What A Time full-timer, you can go to ohwhatatime.com. You can also sign up at anotherslice.com forward slash ohwhatatime. And you can go on your Apple podcast app if you're listening on Apple, and you can subscribe there and get all that extra stuff. Why not? A mere four ninety nine. 
Right, we've had uh, lots of emails in this week, and I'm going to start with this from David. Good day from Australia, and love the show, although I... I suspect that David might be Welsh. In my relentless pursuit of altruism, I can't help but lament the self-serving tendencies of one-day time machine users. <laughs> Almost to personal gain, my noble mission is to teleport back to 1965 and enlighten, say, Dave Bowen, the Welsh football manager at the time, about revolutionary tactics like Gagan Press, total football, <laughs> third man runs, the false nine, amongst other modern tactics. Uh, the false nine actually already existed by that point because the Hungarians had been doing it in the 50s, but it really, 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 really hadn't caught on. Uh, in British football, I should do a, I should do uh, football tactics on this podcast. I'll, I'll, I'll research on myself. Daryl, stand down. You got the week off. My vision: a decades-long Welsh triumph benefiting millions. Of course, I wouldn't dream of using such a powerful device selfishly. Mind you, whilst I'm there, I might have a cheeky £10 wager on consecutive Welsh World Cup victories, merely to cover travel expenses and per diems. I also enclose a picture of the one-day time machine based on a Humber Super Snipe, somewhat based on Doc Brown's DeLorean from Back to the Future. I should point out uh, that the window winders have been removed for safety reasons, as has the cigarette lighter. (laughs) The window winders. Are you putting the child locks on as well when you're you're in that? (laughs) Imagine that. You, you teleport back to back to I don't a thousand BC, and you can't get out of the car because of the chi- uh, the time machine because of child locks. Do you do you really think like that tactical nous would result in that much, you know, that greater oh, achievement? All right then, Chris. All right then, Chris. When Arsene Wenger told the Arsenal team that he took over. To start eating broccoli. This is a direct quote from an interview I uh, read with him. Martin Keown told his teammates that he felt superhuman. <laughs> now, if if you can make athletes feel superhuman by telling them to eat broccoli instead of chips, imagine if you could go back to the sixties with just just that. Just say, listen, boys, you don't you don't have to have eight pints before every game. <laughs> Just, just have a cup of tea. I, do you know what? I'm going to say I'd love to see this happen. I, if, if I had to sign off on a one-day time machine or like a, a five-season time machine, <laughs> I would definitely agree to this. Not as catchy a title, that one, is it? <laughs> five-season time machine. So, okay, you can go back to any uh, league or World Cup and you have five seasons in which to change it. <laughs> This might this might be a good uh, question for the listeners. What other sports could you go back and change? Because remember the Fosbury flop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that came in and revolutionised the high jump. It did, yeah. I um, I know quite a lot about the Fosbury flop because I did it on another <laughs> on another podcast. The people thought he was absolutely bonkers. The first yeah. time he did that because wasn't it into a sandpit? Like, was there was no crash mats like there are now? I don't think I. Don't think so. But people were doing. Uh, there was a kind of. It was a kind of sort of scissor jump over the thing. It was. Just, but it, it. He wasn't smashing records. But you could tell that it was. It was going to be much more efficient. But they. They. People were trying different versions of the long jump as well. There's. I've seen one version of the long jump that was. Effect, that was eventually banned, where you're effectively doing a sort of forward somersault, <laughs> with your eyes closed <laughs> and hoping for the best. 
And I've got another game changer, which is the, the early use of doping in the Tour de France. That's quite, that's quite a key shift, wasn't it? Whoever brought that in first? Well, I reckon in the 60s, no one was testing footballers. So I could bring back a load of anabolic steroids and Gilgit Press and broccoli and the false nine and EPO. Yeah, this is creating the most evil football team that ever lived. I mean, they'd all be dead by 1970. They'd have won a World Cup. What are five seasons? My worry would be that the broccoli and the anabolic steroids would cancel each other out. I, I'm sure there's some kind of... I don't, I'm not a mathematician, but I'm sure there's something in that. One thing I did like about this email is the fact that it starts... It says so much about human behaviour. It starts with, I, I'm going to do something completely selfless. Other people use it for their own ends. I'm, I'm looking to improve, you know, make people's lives better, etc., etc. And then he puts a bet on, on yeah. two World Cups. <laughs> Of course what, he does, because he's a human. We've had it is. It's the old. If you had a time machine, I suppose you should. You know, you should, you should go back and and kill dictators, etc. Yeah. Everyone who's emailed in so far has been like, "Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to go to a nightclub in the '60s and see <laughs> <laughs> and and meet Mick Jagger." <laughs> no, no one has offered. It, David is the first person to offer to improve the world. And he is improving, he's basically improving my world for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, should we make a request for that? Who here wants to make a seismic change in the world? Who of out of our listeners is brave enough to tell us how they're going to really shake things up? It doesn't mean killing a dictator, it could be anything, but we want a big change. Here's your challenge this week. Go back in time, one day, change the world forever. How are you doing that? So, if you would like to change the world, get in touch with the show, here's how. All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ohwhatatimepod. Now, clear off. So this week in our Big Projects episode, thankfully, uh, Big Projects that are nothing to do with me because, as we've established, I would be rubbish at organising them. Uh, I'll be discussing things like feeding the Roman army, uh, lines of communication in the Roman army, and also in our bonus section for subscribers only, bringing electricity to rural areas. And I will be discussing the construction of the Great Pyramids of Giza. Um, To cut a long story short, it was quite hard work. (laughs) (laughs) do hold back some of the research (laughs) in conclusion tough job tough job and i'll be talking about how rome ancient rome was fed um it's actually interesting for this i think it's one of the greatest logistical challenges of the ancient world feeding rome's population of a million people or more at its height uh, and keeping them fed and watered that's the equivalent to, you know, I know in the past the world was less densely populated, but Rome, a million people, is roughly the same size as Glasgow. Yeah, wow. yeah. It's ridiculous, isn't we it? Had, we had 12 people at our house for Christmas dinner last year. It's the most stressful thing I've ever done in my life. And that is a yes. lot. That is way short of a million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, logistically, I couldn't get my head around what I was supposed to do, how I was supposed to deal with this. <laughs> when you think what it takes to keep a city like Glasgow fed and watered with modern logistics, it's pretty yeah. mind-boggling. But when you extrapolate that back to the ancient world and think, 
how do you keep an ancient city fed and watered a million people, but all kinds of goods, not just from Tesco value ranges, right through to the very richest foods and drinks uh, for those that could afford it? Also, in a city of a, of a million people, when things go wrong, it is horrendous. Absolutely. Like, you, you, only need, you only need a shortage, as we saw in the pandemic, of toilet paper for a bit for people to start panicking. <laughs> so in ancient Rome, 2,000 years ago, a million people... It's, it's, it's insane, isn't it? It's incredible. Yeah. Good thing in ancient Rome, if you, if you run out of toilet paper, you do have your toga. So it's kind of... It's <laughs> <laughs> only for a day. <laughs> Well, there's quite a lot of surface area, actually. If you yeah. put aside a toga, you, that would see you through a month if you're working through it patch by patch. I would say, A, it's white, and B, socially. <laughs> you know when you go to someone's house, they've recently moved in and they're sort of testing different paint colours on the wall? It would be like that. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to work out which one's right. Uh, togas weren't always white as well, because we, we, we uh, read about this. We're now doing our own correction corners live. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what we've proven there, by the way, very briefly, is that we are learning... We are actually t- we're internalising this information. Uh, L, you, you suggested there that obviously, if things started to go wrong, you could have a city in full riot on your hands, and there, therefore, by with that observation, you have proven that you would have the sensibility of an emperor, because mm. all the emperors clocked this, and this thus led to a state-driven project to feed Rome that was known as the Cura Annona. So basically, the state would acquire all the grain for the city. The state-driven project was called Cura Anona, which means the care of Anona. Anona was the divine personification of the grain supply and was herself linked to the goddess Ceres, the Roman equivalent of the Greek goddess Dementa, who is responsible for agriculture and celebrated in a long springtime festival known as the Cerelia. And Ceres gives us the name for and concept of cereal crops. Cerelia, Ceres, ah. that's where we get the name cereal So crunching at cornflakes comes directly from ancient Rome. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, bought some of them the other day, and when I ate them, I was like a man possessed. Yeah. <laughs> After the yeah. fourth bowl, I, I thought, this is... This is lunacy. They're unbelievable. You know what? Good. Up until recently, I thought crunching up cornflakes was was a health choice. <laughs> <laughs> and then I caught eye of that little nutritional value section down the bottom. So, well, this is almost entirely sugar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No so idea. tasty though. So tasty. Honey, good health choice. Nuts, good healthy diet. Cornflakes, what's wrong with that? Put them all together. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. It's like broccoli and anabolic steroids. It doesn't work. <laughs> Do not mix them. Um, Rome's food supply was almost entirely imported, typically via the ports at Ostia and Portus at the mouth of the Tiber. Ships arriving from Egypt, the so-called breadbasket of the ancient world, from the North African coast, from Sicily, and from further afield in the empire. One commentator, the Greek orator Aristides, observed that so many ships arrive here conveying every kind of goods from every people every hour, every day, that arrivals and departures never stop. So it's mad, isn't it? Like feeding ancient Rome, it's all getting brought in from all over the empire. Wow. It took a fleet of more than 1,000, possibly something even closer to 2,000 ships, to bring in the sufficient grain supplies, with various emperors providing financial incentives and even offers of citizenship to those merchants who operated the biggest and therefore most useful vessels. And they would, that this would serve to maximise 
supplies, given vessels typically completed only two round trips across the Mediterranean per season from May to September. Um, But interestingly, with all this grain being brought in and this vast network of trade, um, they needed a place to store everything. So Aristides um, likened Rome to the greatest warehouse in the world because of the sheer number of storage facilities. That's not one for the uh, tourist board, is it? The Amazon depot in Swansea would have blown his mind. (laughs) Absolutely. He'd be really pro it. Really pro the death of the high street. Absolutely loving it. This This is how it should be. They called their storage facilities Horea. At the height of the network, Rome had th- over 300 horia in, in which the quantities of grain necessary to feed the population were stored. Every Roman city and garrison town had its equivalent, albeit on a smaller scale. But this, is, this next thing blew my mind, okay? With the storage came waste. So, for example, olive oil contained... Olive oil. Uh, there's an estimated 53 million olive oil containers chucked upon this heap, which is known as Monte Testaccio, and it's the largest spoil heap in the ancient world. How many? I'm going to send you a picture of this now. You know what? You can't wrap your head around the scale of this thing. 53 million was that? 53 million olive oil containers, each capable of holding approximately 70 litres of oil each. Would it kill them to go refillable? Genuinely, would it kill them to go refillable? (laughs) We're doing it. Just get one jar... Go to your source, fill it. <laughs> I think the olive oil thing is like I just I've just popped a link on the chat. Okay, have a click and have a have, you just you cannot believe the size of this mountain. Um, so everyone in the city of Rome was dumping their olive oil containers into this giant heap. Um, in Rome, seven point five million liters of olive oil were imported every single year. Much of it from Spain, and more than a hundred thousand containers were thus smashed and thrown onto the tip. Onto the tip. So we should explain what we're looking at. We're essentially looking at a. We will put this on the Instagram. It is a, a hill. It's a full. It's a full hill. It's a hill. You thought you'd walk up on uh, on a Sunday afternoon and complain it was too steep um what so is that full of olive oil bottles it's full when you zoom in when you zoom in you have a look at these pictures it yeah. looks like a massive hill it is entirely composed of these smashed olive oil containers wow it is massive it's been described as the largest spoil heap it found anywhere in the ancient world it covers two hectares that's 4.9 acres at its base uh, contains yeah the remains of fifty three million olive oil containers. A sort of a, a a bottle of olive oil from two thousand years ago. You would think would be treated with more reverence, but actually <laughs> no, it's just it's just there. <laughs> so the shops you could get in ancient Rome ranged from the elementary, the butcher and the baker, to the more esoteric, the cushion retailer, the kitchenware supplier, the merch stand to support your favourite gladiators. We've touched on. And also you could go uh, get your fast food retailer's snack bar. The Roman equivalent of this was the thermopolium, where you might get a bowl of soup or a stew or a meat skewer, not quite a kebab, but near enough to the modern imagination. So it's basically like, I don't know if you've ever been to like Lakeside or Blue Water, the big Essex shopping centres. It basically feels like that. <laughs> Chris, <laughs> you can't compare. Yeah, I can compare them by ancient markets ancient of ancient Rome. Rome. To Blue Water, that's <laughs> sick, you complete beast. 
on, man. <laughs> it's the same. It, it says that if you drive, if you drive in, it says twinned with ancient Rome, doesn't it? If you drive into uh, <laughs> it's blue water in Essex. But I, I, I genuinely feel I feel jealous of that. That's shopping in small local owned businesses in the sun with incredible produce. That's like, I'm actually feeling, when we discuss medieval Britain or whatever it happens to be, I immediately think that is the last place I'd want to be. But you describe this to me. Now, compared to the high street you have now, chains, concrete, it's, you know, Britain, bad weather. The idea of being there, like you know, beautiful architecture, wonderful weather, all this incredible food cooked on the side. Oh, what a life. I'm, I'm going to make a complaint, though, about the, the shopping centres of the ancient world. Okay. When, and and oh, this is drawn from personal experience. No phones for you. <laughs> when you go to Lakeside and Blue Water, yeah. everything's got a price tag. You know, when you go to those kind of Middle Eastern souks or you're, you're on holiday abroad... And you go in there into the market. Come down to the market. You got a haggle for everything. It's busy. It's noisy. The ceilings are low. You can't. You can't really see where one shop ends and another one begins. Everything's a bit of a haggle. This is what I imagine the ancient world's like, isn't it? Those markets are basically going to be the same. Do you think you'd be someone who'd accept? You go. Well, I'm just the guy who pays double. That's just who I <laughs> yeah. am. Yeah, yeah. I'll yeah, never yeah. be able to sort of negotiate my way around that. Or do you think you'd actually fancy your chances? Yeah, I'm not. I don't. I don't love the thrill of the negotiation. Too much guilt going on as well. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I start to feel I'm going too low, and this person's <laughs> coming out at a loss, actually gives me a stomachache. And if I do it for more than about five minutes, it gives me eczema. Are we just going to let let it fly? That Tom implied basically he's such a good negotiator that the uh, that the guy's negotiating with goes too low. <laughs> And starts having a breakdown. <laughs> I'm such a good negotiator. You could send me to a vegetable store in ancient Rome, and by the end of the negotiation, I would own the store. Why you'd uh, you like this cucumber, eh? Oh, just take it. Just take it. You're too good. <laughs> Well, if feeding ancient Rome was a logistical challenge because of its sheer size, then then think about this. You had to feed a marching army thousands of miles away. So that demanded incredible logisticians and clever people. Because the Romans, as we know from various ancient sources, including the Vindolanda tablets from Hadrian's Wall, solved the question of how to feed the troops by having them cultivate land and graze animals, by using the resources of the conquered provinces, by oh. hunting the local landscape, by shopping, and by shipping whatever else was necessary to maintain the garrison. So they were shipping in olive oil, fish sauce, and I love this, and wine from stores <laughs> abroad, because your army needs wine. <laughs> so uh, the Vindolander... Uh, mentions food and drink, uh, and it gives some sense of of the kind of diet that was possible in a stable community. So this is the kind of thing maybe a Roman army might be eating. Venison, pig's trotter, ham, chicken, eggs, oysters, plums, garlic, olive oil, beer, wine, honey, blackberries, cherries, apricots and milk tray so they were bringing all of this stuff in wow not the milk tray obviously <laughs> but uh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Th- but but think about that it's th- th- that 
that's such a varied, impressive diet. I'm on board with all of them apart from pig's trotters. That's the only one that I'm not going with. Yeah, I don't know if there was much scope to be fussy if you're in the okay. Royal Army. <laughs> um, once I went to Berlin and I went to an authentic German restaurant and I ordered something that I didn't really understand. And when it came out, it was a pig's trotter. It was like a pork, I think it might be called pork knuckle. It was like, you could see it was a pig's foot and soup. And it was presented to me together. And I was like, whatever I've ordered, obviously this pig trotter's got to go in the soup, isn't it? That's why they brought it out together. So I started messing, putting the pig trotter into the soup and was eating it. It was absolutely vile. And about five minutes later, the waiter came over and went, I'm so sorry, I've given you someone else's order. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you looked in the corner and there was a, there was a three-legged pig there waving at you <laughs> and that's it and, uh, and I was like well I don't want it and the, the waiter was like well you've eaten you've started now and he no, charged me for it that's not alright yeah 100% that's what happened <laughs> he charged me for it that feels like a tourist scam <laughs> that, that, that's just how they get rid of the pig droppers <laughs> so what had you ordered I don't know. I can't. I just, it was like the recommended thing, but yeah. I didn't really understand it. Reading it on the menu when he when he came out, it was like a pork trotter and a soup. Foot of the day. Yeah, but you know they take the menus off you, so I couldn't cross reference what I do. I was. Like, this must be it. Well, when I was in Alicante, they'd obviously the the people who ran the restaurant we used to go to that was near the hotels. We went there every night because it was really nice. But obviously there was no one there with very good English. So they'd Google translated the menu. So each night I would order I would order either dumbfounded sky bacon or fragmentation hand grenade, which was a kind of pudding with pineapple. What was dumbfounded what sky was bacon? What was sky bacon? I can't remember what what the, the what the meals actually were. I just remember the English translations. And one night ordering a dumbfounded sky bacon and actually it was all right. But what an incredible, what an incredible name for uh, like a starter. Talking of um, trotters and and feet, I, Ellis knows this. I once ordered a pizza. Um, I won't say the place. And when it arrived, it had a footprint baked into it. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable! It was one of the major chains as well. So I'm not going to say which one it was. I was in Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Festival. I was feeling really stressed and low. I was feeling. I was living with John Robbins at the time, actually. And uh, it turned out that's not why you were feeling stressed and low. <laughs> Quite the opposite, uh, but yeah, and footprint baked, footprint baked wow. into it is the one. That's the one baked into. So where, that must have happened pre-cooking. Well, if you'd been in the Roman army, you could have been eating venison, pigs trotter, ham, chicken, eggs, oysters, plums, garlic, olives, beer, wine, honey, blackberries, cherries, and apricots, and hubba bubba, which is such an amazing diet. <laughs> In the later Roman Empire, this mechanism of military food supply would become a kind of tax, the Annona Militaris, which was imposed on citizens to maintain the army. So that principle would transfer from the Roman Empire into its successor, the, Byz- the Byzantine Empire, with Constantinople at its core. But a military force such as that commanded by Alexander the Great, one that travelled more than 3,000 miles to the east of its homeland in Macedonia, Whoa. needed far more mobile supplies and malleable supply chains. So to put things into perspective, Alexander the Great Army, daily water consumption ran to almost 100,000 gallons, about 450,000 litres, if you're modern, and food rations were £3 of grain per soldier per day, or about 1.5 kilograms. 
But this was the same as a Roman legionary's uh, ration in later centuries. So more food and water were needed for the cavalry horses, obviously, and the pack animals as well, to say nothing of the civilian retinue that followed in the baggage train. So you had these vast quantities of essentials that all had to be supplied in or from terrain that was often not well suited to such demands or had short and easily overwhelmed growing seasons. I'm genuinely finding this stressful. The, the, the idea of overseeing that, I can't even begin to think how you're doing Also, that. those distances are enormous. Yeah, even yeah. for a modern army, Vast. that is yeah. mind-blowingly difficult. And, and famously, armies, even in the 20th century, run into logistical problems of over far shorter distances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So running Alexander's empire... All two million square miles of it, from Greece to the Indus Valley, was perhaps the ultimate big project of the ancient world. So this is how he managed it. In part, by utilising existing supply routes and road networks, particularly those of the Persian Empire, over which he triumphed. So he's using networks and systems that are already in place. Clever. That's what I'd do, by the way. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, this this looks quite good actually. I think we'll just, just copy them. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think to be honest, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Is what I do. You agree with that, Alexander? You do. Yeah, yeah. You use their networks. Yeah, it's quite a good road. Uh, in part by the forging of alliances and maintaining loyalty by taking prisoners and leaving behind garrisons and governors to ensure order and orderly delivery. Um, which is what Julius Caesar uh, did during the conquest of Gaul. Again, good idea. Yep. Uh, again, if Alexander the Great suggested that, I'd be like, yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and in part by forward planning, and uh, this is where I would really struggle, and by projecting power ahead of him, so supply chains would be secured wherever possible before the main body of the army would be moved. Oh, so he'd send forward like a, 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 a squad, I imagine, ahead yeah, of the large body to sort so it I all get, out. Yeah, I get very, I get very anxious if I think I'm going to be hungry. Yeah. So if they've if they've sent, you know, if they've if they've sent a, a part of the army forward already, I'd be like, so there is going to be food when we're fighting. Yeah. Great. Okay, that's that's fine. To so sort of go and maybe go and hold a big table at Pizza Express or something like that. E- exactly <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> Sit there. Uh, if you if you go in, have you got a table for four thousand people, and then there's just one guy sat at the end, and he's put his coat on another chair, so he's filling a bit of space. One guy in four thousand coats, <laughs> and he's freezing. Yeah. But it, when it went very wrong, though, as it did on Alexander's march back to Babylon through the desert, uh, west of what is now modern-day Karachi, famine, starvation, disease, and then death stalked the army. So as their food ran out, the soldiers turned first to the fish that the local coastal population ate, then to the roots of palm trees, then to eating their pack animals, camels and horses. And then they ran out of water. So, you know, you'd be be thirsty, you'd stink, you'd be absolutely starving hungry. So this is an extract from uh, Curtius describing another close encounter with death by starvation in Bactria, which is sort of modern northern Afghanistan. Grain shortages brought the troops to the verge of starvation. The men rubbed their bodies with juice and pressed sesame in lieu of oil. As for wheat, there was none. They survived on freshwater fish and herbs. So sort of, I don't know, kind of a modern Atkins diet. Um, Now, Alexander was not the only uh, commander brought on a peg or two by the elements. It happened to numerous Romans and to Napoleon as well, who twice forgot 
his own maxim that an army marches on its stomach because he left troops to die in the deserts of Egypt and the snows of Russia. That is the one thing, you know, as you're looking out your window as an army approaches your village, saying to your loved ones, not to worry, but they look hangry. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was bad. It's even worse. They look hangry. <laughs> we got anything in the cupboards. We don't. This is going to be horrendous. Got any protein bars? <laughs> you knock up some porridge. Unsurprisingly, it seems that both Alexander and the later sources, including Arian and his Roman counterpart Curtius, paid close attention to the landscape. So the rivers, no matter how large, they seemed to dry up in the summer months, and so they presented a danger to settlement or to garrisons or a moving army. Then you had snowy summits that provided defenders and inhabitants with an unlimited supply of water, so that was obviously vital. And then you had frozen terrain where there was nothing to hunt and no vines to harvest. So usually Alexander got it right. He was very good at logistics and he followed sensible courses of action. So he'd marched from heavily populated and well-supplied places to others. He would settle during the winter months in places where harvests were plentiful. Mm-hmm. And he'd ensured as far as possible that supplies would be brought in by sea. And you could establish new cities. So in modern Afghanistan, at Kandahar and near Herat, which were all at vital points in rivers, oases or, or existing trade routes. And then you could ensure the security of supplies. So as, if, as often happened in Central Asia, Alexander was forced to winter in areas that could be supplied, that couldn't be supplied externally, then he broke his army into smaller parts. So it would place less of a strain on what was available. Oh. And he was sort of entrusting the logistical skills of his lieutenants, and then they could be sent out to forage as well as to sort of do reconnaissance missions. So interesting. And and he made practical changes to how his army functioned, which made it more easily adaptable to local circumstances. So as it moved east, the force largely swapped pack animals for camels, which was an idea he borrowed from the Persians. <laughs> I was going to suggest camels. Can I shock you? <laughs> I like camels. <laughs> That's so interesting. So, so I imagine some of these smaller groups would have been placed near towns as well, existing settlements where there would have been some kind of. I, I would like to assume. I don't know. Or, or, or is well, I think it's just easier to feed a small yeah. group, isn't it? So, yeah, like yeah. his dad, Philip, uh, Alexander restricted the use of wooden carts because they were slow and in treeless areas. Of- Sorry, like like his dad, Philip. <laughs> That's too normal a name, isn't it? To suddenly yeah. come out. We've just had. <laughs> What was the name? I, I, I thought they were Jason. Alexander's, Alexander's the Great's dad was called Philip. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if he ever referred to him as dad. <laughs> How are you imagining Philip? Alexander's got olive leaves in his, in his hair, a tunic made of gold. Philip, I'm imagining, with a button-up shirt. Glasses with some sellotape in the middle. <laughs> so Philip had restricted use of wooden carts because they were slow and then in treeless areas of Central Asia couldn't be replaced or fixed very easily. Oh. So soldiers and the civilian retinue, they had to carry as much as they could. So to be honest, even though Alexander's army, Alexander the Great Army, it it led to all these incredible mythical feats and all these legendary achievements, basically he did the basics right he realised that an army needed food and it needed water, and without that, uh, they're ruined. That is absolutely fascinating. One thing I want to mention, which I saw about six months ago, there's this guy, you look it up on YouTube, who buys old army rations. Oh, my God, I love this. I've, I love this YouTube channel. From, like, World War One, that have been stored in tins... 
and then he eats them, and then half the time he'll be really, really sick. <laughs> <laughs> and other times he'll go, yeah, it tastes a bit like chicken, it's all right, and then he'll be fine. <laughs> but that's basically I what it does. I am so into this guy, I can't yeah. believe you've seen this, Crane. Have I told yeah. you about it? No, I found it on YouTube. I mean, some of the stuff he's eaten. There's one I watched where I'm sure he eats a World War One ration. and yes. Like bully beef or something. The thing is, like, it's dust. It's more or less dust. But occasionally he will draw the line and go, I can't eat this. Like, particularly the meat product. But he's often just, like, sat at, just in, in his living room. Like, it's just like, not, he doesn't put it in any setting. There's no effort to kind of deck the walls in World War II memorabilia. It's just literally just sat in his house, opens the tin, there's a puff of dust, he has a bite, he tries not to be sick. And then he thinks, I can't wait to go again. And he gets back on the internet. My favourite thing that he eats is he gets, like, World War One like, and Korean War biscuits, and that they are... Du- they are sawdust. They are the, the driest thing you've ever seen, and he will attempt to eat them. It is vile. Right, please send me a link to this guy, because <laughs> I've got um, quite a quiet afternoon, actually, okay, and now great. I know what I'm going to be doing. I was going to go for a bike ride, but no, I'm going to be watching an absolute maniac eating biscuits from the Korean War. <laughs> I'm going to talk to you today about the pyramids of Giza and more specifically their construction. Now, there are plenty of theories about how the pyramids were built. Um, I'll take you through some of the more unusual ones. Um, Famed psychic Edgar Case believed that they were built by a consortium of ancients who used their extraordinary mental powers to lift the blocks into, into place. Yeah, uh, that's what I think. Good. <laughs> Chris, you seconding that? No. Is aliens on the on your list? Well, we'll get to that. Former Minnesota, <laughs> former Minnesota congressman Ignatius Donnelly. His, he believed that the people of the lost city of Atlantis were responsible, so much so that he published a book covering this in 1882. So this is the Minnesota congressman Ignatius Donnelly. He felt it was. How do you write that book? I know. <laughs> like. Because if you're not doing research, you have to accept that's just a, a piece of fiction. <laughs> it's a hunch. <laughs> so you're sitting down there. Uh, uh, you got your pen out and a pad. What are you doing up there? I'm writing a book, actually, about the pyramids. How, how come? It, entirely from the product of my own imagination. We know you live in Minnesota as well. Yeah. What is this, what is this base of research? It's incredible. So that's, that's Ignatius Donnelly. God, it was easy to get a publishing deal in the 1880s, wasn't it? Well, you know, um, Joseph Smith saw the whole Mormon religion from inside a hat. He, he dictated it all while sticking his head in a hat. <laughs> really? That's not... That's a fact. You can look that up. Like the sorting hat in Harry Potter, like a big hat. Is that what you mean? Like his eyes were covered? I think it's a big top hat. Wow. He dictated the whole Book of Mormon from staring inside of a hat. <laughs> There you go. Well, we all work in different ways, don't we? I like to use a whiteboard. So, and still to this day, as Chris points out, a lot of people, more people than you would imagine, uh, still believe that aliens built the pyramids and that they're put there to observe us. So, yeah, yeah something in that. Let's start with the question. If you've got to, you've got to bet your life on one of those three, which are you going for? What's your? You literally, one of them's going yeah. to be right, and that's going to save your life. Which is which uh, are you going for? Aliens. 
Yeah, aliens. Aliens all day long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's clearly bloody aliens. I I can't... I mean, when you see the pictures of the pyramids now and the Great Sphinx, it looks unbelievable. I can only imagine... You know, Napoleon's army... Napoleon himself stumbled upon the pyramids and Mm. saw them. And how could you think anything other than aliens must have put them here? Yeah. I don't think you would be able to... for Even 100 years ago, that there was a great civilization that built them. I can understand why people jump to that conclusion. I can imagine myself turning up, looking at them and thinking uh, they were constructed using a series of ramps, pulleys and ropes, which is correct, (laughs) actually. Which is actually correct. So... Let's talk about that process. <laughs> that is the more traditional theory. The first pharaoh to be buried in a pyramid was Pharaoh Djosa. Now, the construction of this first pyramid-shaped tomb in the 27th century BC did away with the mud and straw bricks that had been used on smaller flat roof tombs previously. And it was the first pyramid to use limestone. And this important step which changed the shape and size of pyramids going forward, was led by Joss's royal architect, who was called Imhotep. And for a point, why did Imhotep become famous in 1999? Or was there an up company or something named after him? Have you watched the blockbuster movie The Mummy? Oh, Oh, I thought you recognised that name. That is who it's based on. That character is Imhotep, who is the architect um, for Joss's um, pyramid. I don't think it's... Art- architects are, are rarely used as the, the baddies, are they, in movies? It's quite nice to... <laughs> quite unusual. Yes, that's true. <laughs> They've gone with it and it worked. Now, to shift the blocks into place, architects and engineers use a system, as I say, of ramps and wooden rollers to move the limestone up to upper levels. Um, and this technology was tweaked and then perfected until at last, in 2550 BC, the Great Pyramid of Giza could be built as a tomb for Pharaoh Khufu. Now, this is the one I really want to talk about. The Great Pyramid is the largest Egyptian pyramid. It is also the oldest of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's the only one of the seven wonders that has remained largely intact and it remained the tallest structure in the world for 3,800 years. Wow. Isn't that, that incredible? Mad, isn't that for 3,800 years, that was never bettered in terms of height. Just absolutely incredible. And as with all pyramids, it was built while the pharaoh was still alive in preparation for their death, which I've been thinking about mm. this. feels a bit weird. I, the idea of, of seeing that going up opposite your home, how you'd feel, I'd feel it'd be a bit bleak. Not sure you, about that, what, actually. What would you do if you went around my house in the garden was my own ornate gravestone that I was carving really <laughs> intricately? I, I tell you one, one thing, though. It would it would stop you from wasting time. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't it? You'd like, you'd like, actually, I'm not going to have a lie-in. I've just realised that uh, m- m- my life on Earth is finite because I've got a massive tomb being built in my back garden. So, yeah. I- and as it's going up, you're right, it's a reminder that time is finite. Each of those layers is, a, is, a, is an example of yet more time ticking away and eventually you're going to be in that. I will meet you for a pint, actually. <laughs> I'll get a babysitter. <laughs> if it was out front, it was opposite my house, I'd probably use the back garden more. I think I'd probably... I wouldn't want to look at it all the time. <laughs> I think it might bleak me out a bit. Um, Let's discuss some stats from this Great Pyramid. It took around 27 years to build. That's not bad. No, that's not bad, actually. No. I would imagine that it would take... Looking at the size of it, you'd think it would take much longer. Yeah, I was going to say 100 years. 
Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty. That's very specific as well. Twenty. So we know that then. We know yeah. exactly how long it took to build. The estimate was twelve years, but the builder they always get it wrong, don't they? Imagine <laughs> dying before it was finished. On your deathbed, you'd be like, "Oh, nice one." Um, <laughs> I should have chucked money at this. Can I just ask a fundamental thing that I've always one thought about with a pyramid, right? So the, he's building this big tomb, essentially. The pyramid is a big tomb to him, right? And I've seen, like, what it looks like inside the pyramid. And the tomb is basically, like, halfway up the pyramid, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, and you go, like, there's an angular little tunnel into the tomb. The, uh, surely, if you're building a big pyramid that's to act as a tomb, you build the tomb right underneath the base of it and then put the pyramid on top so no one can get in it. No. What is your question? Oh. Your question is... My question is, Imhotep's got this bang wrong. Why, <laughs> if you're building the, put the... Don't put the tomb in the middle of the pyramid because it's going to be relatively easy to get into it, no? Build, put the tomb right underground and then build this huge but pyramid on the top. shape of it... Well, the, the, the shape of the pyramid has been shown to be religiously important to the ancient Egyptians. So I think maybe to be at the core of this significant shape was quite important to them I suppose more than the idea of Tomb Raiders possibly there was that idea that there wouldn't be Tomb Raiders we're a pharaoh we'll be protected all this sort of stuff that's something that happened in time possibly they didn't have that fear at that point when are you going to get out of Imhotep's arse (laughs) (laughs) Um, some more stats it was built by quarrying this is incredible an estimated 2.3 million large blocks 2.3 2.3 million, yeah. which is, if you're running that quarry, is a large order. <laughs> Speaking to you, coming back to your partner, saying, how was your day? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I could have to work late a lot going forward. Yeah, I signed off on it today. Yeah. <laughs> so many zeros. Imagine that day you're in the quarry and the order comes in. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're having a Chinese that night. You've been struggling for months. You don't know how you're going to keep the, the business afloat, and then you get a 2.3 million block order. It's fine. We're going to be fine for about the next 27 years, actually. <laughs> Each block weighed between two and a half and 15 tons. To give you an idea, an elephant weighs between two and seven tons. So some of these blocks were twice the size of an elephant. And an elephant's easy to get up a slope because it has legs as well, remember? It's kind of the stone is... <laughs> and they're quite obedient. Exactly, yeah. And these blocks all came from the limestone quarries at Tura, which was situated on the east bank of the Nile between modern-day Ky- um, Cairo and Helwan, and were transported by boat to a specially constructed dock at Giza and then transported from there to the building site where they were set in place. And incredibly... This knowledge all comes from a remarkable uh, papyrus source, which was discovered in 2013 and dubbed the Diary of Marais. And essentially, it offered a journal de- detailing the shipping of stone undertaken by Marais and his team. So it's basically a work journal. A guy was writing down what they did with the day, how it worked, and this journal has been found, which tells you about um, the logistics of doing it. Um, That's amazing. That, combined with other archaeological finds... And this is a crucial one. And the discovery of a workers' village at Giza in 1988 and a workers' cemetery two years later have helped create the picture of a gigantic and highly organised building site with logistical and demographic arms stretching across Egypt. Now, the workers' village was incredible. It contained all the necessities for life, which is based around the pyramid, as did the neighbouring community constructed to house temporary workers and a third community, which was more upmarket for administration officials, people like foremen who were tasked with overseeing the construction. You talk about stressful job and the idea of not being able to oversee see things, Ellis. The idea of overseeing the building of a pyramid just stresses me so much. Oh, yeah. 
a nightmare. Because my worry would be, I wouldn't want to go do a bad job and then get killed, and also wouldn't want to do so good a job that he decided he wanted to be buried with him. Which seemed to be the sort of thing that happened back then. It's like you're, you're seen as some kind of deified god or whatever it happens to be. They bury their cats. They buried all the things that mattered to them with them. And that has happened. They, 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 they were buried with, their, with their, their slaves, their servants, and these sort of things. You don't want to do so well that that happens. What a tightrope. Yeah. Just good enough to not lose your job. Just bad enough to not get buried with your boss. Human bones have been found at these sites and have been illuminating. They display signs of hard physical labour, but also, and this is interesting, healed fractures, which shows the medical care that was on offer there. And we also know that these people ate well. There's ancient rubbish tips. Chris talks about the olive oil. And these rubbish tips have been excavated to reveal the bones of fish, birds, cattle, sheep, goats and pigs. Um, can I ask um, a question about a misconception I've obviously got then? Yeah. Which is that the pyramids were built by slaves. I thought they this were just... is more recently considered to be a misconception that actually wow. they were paid workers. Um, you know, obviously it was very hard work. That's not to say that you you probably didn't get pension and all this sort of stuff but you it, it was it yeah they were they were and often it was farmers who were unable to work the land during flooding seasons and stuff like this so th- yeah th- it's recently been felt that actually the idea that they were slaves oh. is a falsity and finally and i think it's really interesting graffiti and work schedule papyrus i love that there's all this just work schedule stuff just lying around just basically people clocking in yeah. and clocking off and how this works found at the site even reveals something of the personality of these labour gangs these these groups of people into which the workforce was organised with the names that they gave themselves um, here's some of the names they had the Friends of Khufu the Green Ones Labourers of Menkara and the Purifiers of Horus and this one I, this one makes me laugh just simply the Perfectionists which are <laughs> how are you imagining the Perfectionists? <laughs> like, like the eggheads yeah it does. It's, you're right. It sounds like a pub quiz team, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Tom. That was great. And thank you to you uh, for listening. If you'd like a fourth part on big projects, you can always subscribe and then you'll get the uh, fourth part, which this week is bringing electricity to rural areas. Uh, It's something I've been looking at, or rather uh, Daryl looked at and I will be looking at the research that Daryl did and adding my own unique spin that is academically rigorous. So if you'd like to subscribe, the details are on owatertime.com. See you next week. Goodbye. Bye.